Good morning. Just to be clear, I am not Tyler with a fake beard. My name is Johnny, the beard is real, and I am the youth guy here at Richview. One of the perks of working with youth is that it keeps you humble. Frequently and emphatically, I am reminded that I am not funny or cool. I spent four years growing out my beard, and I got a nice man bun going on, and no, still not cool. Anyways, it's an honor to be here this morning, and I am stoked about learning together. All right, when I was in my undergrad, I had an opportunity to go on a missions trip. For as long as I can remember, I had always wanted to go to Australia. And sure enough, I ended up on a plane, traveling in the complete opposite direction to a place only accessible by bush plane, a place called Port Allsworth, Alaska. The population, 159 people. <laughs> Why would anyone go there? Well, around Port Allsworth, there are a bunch of reserves, completely closed to outsiders. But every summer, they would send their youth to an overnight camp hosted by the church in Port Allsworth. They had a beautiful facility for hosting camp. And one day, I was sitting in the cafeteria, and I noticed a banner that stretched across the top of one of the walls. It was around nine years ago, but those words are still ingrained in my mind to this day. Dying for me was the most that he could do. Living for him is the least that I can do. You may or may not agree with that statement, and that's okay. What I want to draw your attention to, though, is the underlying question behind that statement. See, when a person is presented with the eyewitness accounts of what God has done for them, and if they believe that it's true, they are compelled to wrestle with this question for the rest of their lives. The question is this. How should I respond after all that God has done for me? How should I respond after all that God has done for me? We are in the midst of a series where we're going through a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul had, had encountered Jesus in a unique way, a miraculous way. So miraculous, in fact, that Paul went from actively seeking to have followers of Jesus destroyed to being a person who devoted his life to telling people about Jesus. In this letter, Paul was writing to a community of people who were followers of Jesus. Many of them he knew personally, but all of them he cared deeply, deeply about. Today we're looking at a section in that letter where Paul addresses that timeless question. How should a person respond after all that God has done for them. The passage is found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. If you're able, would you mind joining in standing with me and repeating after me? Yes, yes, all of you, if you can, if you can. All right, great, thank you. As citizens of heaven, that's the best you got? All right, let's try that again. As citizens of heaven, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you 
for the sake of Christ. That you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. It was customary in the biblical world to stand for God's word. But you can most definitely sit for mine. So you can take a seat. <laughs> All right. Before we dive into unpacking this scripture, I would like to take a moment to talk with God. God, I thank you for each and every single person in this room right now. I don't believe that anyone is here on accident. I ask God that you would help me to communicate clearly. May my limitations not get in the way of people hearing what you want them to hear. I ask what is true because it has come from you that it would be easily remembered. But what is untrue, God, may you Remove it from that. May it be easily and quickly forgotten. Lastly, God, would you strengthen us to be able to put into practice what you have called us to do? We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's do this. All right. As citizens of heaven, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was writing to the people in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman city. Therefore, the people he was writing to were Roman citizens. And yet, Paul refers to them as citizens of heaven. Not only does that sound cool, but it also highlights an important truth. Sure, they may currently reside in Philippi, but as a result of a person's response of faith to the gospel, their eternal home, their true home, is in heaven. That is the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sin no longer has to separate us from God. Our sins have been paid in full by Jesus on the cross. So now we are able to have a relationship with an eternal God. And in that relationship with an eternal God, we too receive eternal life. As citizens of heaven, the people in Philippi had two options. They could choose to live their life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, or not. Paul's hope was that his friends would choose the worthy life. He hoped that he would be able to see them living it out in person. But even as he wrote this letter, he knew that he may never get that chance because he was writing that letter from prison. Nevertheless, whether he got to see them, living it out firsthand, or not, his hope and his prayer was that they would choose to live the worthy life. But what exactly is a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel? What does that look like practically? That's a great question. And thankfully, Paul has a great answer. All right, so Paul gives three components, three benchmarks of a worthy life, and he gives them in rapid succession. So buckle up, here we go. First of all, it entails, number one, that you are standing firm in one spirit. That you are standing firm in one spirit. Number two, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Number three, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. So what on earth is Paul saying here? See, we can know what something says, but there's little value in hearing and knowing without understanding and putting it into practice. So let's see if we can get to the bottom of what these things mean and find out why Paul would think that these are the three fundamental components of a lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. All right, so number one, what does Paul say? 
Paul says, the first component of having a manner of life worthy of the gospel is that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm. It's a phrase that's used multiple times in the scripture to illustrate an unwillingness to budge. All right? It's like a soldier who is unwilling to surrender. Not a battle, not an inch, not a millimeter. No way, Jose, am I backing down. I will stand my ground. That is the picture of standing firm. In one spirit, on the other hand, this refers to the fact that there is unity in the community of believers. But what are they unified about? Well, they are unified in their unwillingness to move. They are unified in their standing firm. Okay, but why won't they move? Where exactly are they standing? What are, what are they standing on? Well, they are standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they won't move because they know that Christ is the solid rock on which they stand. And all other ground is sinking sands. Okay? So number one, a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is one that sticks to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, but why does Paul even need to say this? Why would anyone shift from that? Well, there's pressure to waver from the gospel, first of all, in its content. Perhaps you've had a conversation in your life sometime that went something like this. Excuse me, I don't need Jesus to die for my sins. I'll get rid of them another way. I'm sorry, but there's no other way to get rid of your sins. There's no other way to God. How dare you say that? You are so narrow-minded. You, you Christians make me sick. There was all sorts of pressure to compromise the content of the gospel in order to make it more culturally acceptable. But here's the thing. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, we have the option of accepting that or rejecting that. What we do not have is the option of, or the authority even, to alter that. Why? Because it's not my gospel. It's not your gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is pressure to waver from the gospel in its content. But there's also pressure to shift from the gospel in our conduct. When I talk with the youth, I wish that I could tell them that peer pressure will come to an end after high school or college. But I can't do that. Why? Because peer pressure and the potential for it is present in every stage of life, from primary school all the way up to retirement facilities. Can I get an amen up there? Yes. Okay. It's present all the way through. So there is external pressure and there's internal pressure as well. Even after coming to Jesus, we still have sinful desires that urge us to make choices that are in conflict with obedience to God. Man, as if the external forces weren't enough, now we have internal forces. So ever heard of, like, lust? Or anger? Gluttony? Greed? Where does that come from? Jesus says it comes from our own hearts. A manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is one in which there is unity in the community on what they believe and on how they behave. Why? Because they stick to the gospel. All right, let's look at the second thing that Paul says. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. With one mind, once again, we see that there is, come on, 
Unity. There's unity. Okay. Once again, we see that there's unity. They are unified in striving. The Greek word for striving is soon athleo. Say soon athleo. Okay, good enough. All right. Soon athleo can be translated into three different words or in three different ways. To strive, labor, and compete. Athleo. That is where we get our word athlete. Strive, labor, compete. All three have in common that a level of effort must be put forth to achieve a particular goal. But what is Paul saying that they should be unified in trying to put effort towards accomplishing? Rather than tell you, I would like to do a demonstration. This is a bagel. I know, I know. It's in case I get hungry up here. All right, and this is butter. This bagel represents the world. And this butter, the gospel. A manner of life that is worthy of the gospel is one that does not simply know the gospel, but one that is passionately devoted to the spread of the gospel in the world. <laughs> yes, you don't want to miss a spot. You want to get it all across the world. Okay. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've been to a lot of sermons in my day, and that is by far the worst illustration that I have ever seen. In fact... I think it's safe to say that this is the worst illustration in the history of all illustrations. A bagel and butter? Really? Come on, you can do better than that. Okay, okay, all right. Well, let me tell you this. Tomorrow is Monday. Nobody likes Mondays. And most Mondays, you may wake up tired and grumpy and running late, and you may pick up your bagel or your piece of toast and slap some butter on it, and in that moment, I hope it hits you. I pray that it hits you, that this silly little illustration causes you to stop and think. As you go off to school or to work, to learn or to earn, I hope you realize that you have an opportunity to do something far greater than simply gain an education or compensation. Yeah, so most Mondays. So when you head off to school or to work, I hope you realize that you have the opportunity to do something far greater than simply gain an education or compensation. You have an opportunity to present another person with information that can change their lives forever. All right, take a moment and look around. To the left, to the right. Out of everyone here this morning, I would be surprised if three of you remember the word sunathleo next week. <laughs> and you know what? Who cares? I won't lose any sleep over that. Who cares? But I would be so thrilled if every time you spread butter on bread, you are reminded that a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life that strives. It puts forth effort in the spread of the gospel. All right, two down, one to go. All right, what does Paul say for number three? and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why would they be frightened? What on earth were these opponents doing? The recipients of Paul's letter were living in an empire where there was a mandatory religious system in place called the imperial cult. This means that the ruler, Caesar, was considered to be a god. And every city would have temples for Caesar in which they would do all manner of atrocious things. The expectation was that every person in the empire would participate in these activities. 
The problem is to confess that Jesus is Lord is to mean that Caesar is not. I won't bow my knee to him. Not today. Not any day. Not ever. But to say that Caesar was not a god was not a safe thing to do. It could result in all manner of danger. From loss of job, to excommunication, to imprisonment, torture, even loss of life. Be that as it may. A manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life that is willing to suffer fearlessly for the gospel. I want you to join with me in doing a hypothetical, an imaginary social experiment. I would say to close your eyes, but I've had too many youth fall asleep when I do that. (laughs) So I just want you to imagine, use your mind's eye, and visualize that we are at an airport. Are you visualizing? Okay, cool, are we there? Great, okay. Now, I want you to pick a random person out of the crowd. And I want you to walk up to that random person and pretend to punch them in the face. Okay, what would happen? What would be their first reaction? Well, if you're unlucky, you may have picked someone who's a martial artist or a UFC specialist, and they are going to knock you out. Sorry about that. But, you know, that's like the 1% or even the 0.1% of the population. The other 99%, though, most of them, their first reaction would be to flinch. Ah! Woo! I don't know why I made those noises, but um, they're going to flinch. Afterwards, they may swear at you, run away, or call security because you, my friends, are crazy people. But no matter the culture or ethnicity or gender of the person that you picked, their first reaction would likely be to flinch. Why? Well, because if a fist is coming at your face, your body and your mind will instinctively react out of fear in an attempt to avoid physical harm. This doesn't seem to make any sense, though. Let's look again at what Paul says. When Paul says that they should not be frightened in anything by their opponents, he is saying something pretty strange. He is saying that they should disregard their natural instinct of fear in response to physical harm. What's this guy talking about? What would motivate a person to override such a basic natural instinct? Well, Paul says that when we are not frightened in anything by our opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul is giving us a twofold reason why a person would not respond with fear. First of all, Paul says that they have a supernatural reason to not fear natural, physical harm. This supernatural reason is their salvation. Death is not the end for them. So they do not need to be frightened of physical harm or even death. But that's not all. Paul also says that when we act in a way that goes against human logic, that act, that response, functions as a sign. What is the purpose of a sign? A sign gives information, direction, or instruction. Take this sign, for example. This is a stop sign. It gives instruction to stop. I know, groundbreaking. Okay, it gives instruction to stop. Despite what we may think or feel sometimes, it isn't there for no reason. It serves the function of keeping people safe. It is there to prevent future disaster. See, you may choose to disregard a stop sign, 
you may choose to treat it as stoptional. <laughs> but you do so at your own risk. So Paul is saying, I want you to override something as basic as your own natural instinct of fear in the face of suffering so that your response will function as a sign of your salvation. But why do I need a sign of my own salvation? You don't. It's not for you. It's for your enemy. Are you serious? You can't be serious. Why on earth should I care about the very people who are causing me to suffer? Why should I act in a way that's going to benefit them? And this is where Paul drops the bomb. He gives us a reason why we should care about those who make us suffer. But if I'm honest, I don't think we're going to like it. Listen to this. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake. Did you catch it? Where does our faith come from? It has been granted to us from God. Nice. Where does our suffering come from? According to Paul, it has also been granted to us from God. What is the motivation for responding to our enemies in a way that would benefit them? Because the suffering for our faith is not because of them. It's for them. Pause for a moment. Take that in. Paul is saying something absolutely extraordinary. When we suffer for our faith, the suffering that we experience is not primarily because of our opponents. It's because of God. And it's for the benefit of our opponents. What kind of nonsense is this? Paul, you have gone too far. Does Paul expect me to believe that God would give somebody that he claims to love suffering in order that his enemies might come to know him? Do you honestly expect me to believe that Almighty God would do something like that? I hope so. I hope you believe that. Because that, my friends, is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his beloved son to suffer and die so that his enemies, us, could become his friends. So that his enemies, us, could become citizens of heaven. Is it fair, though, that God asks us to endure suffering for the benefit of our enemies? I don't know. I don't know if it's fair. But God isn't asking us to do anything that he wasn't willing to go through himself. Okay, but... Does it really work? Can a person's response to suffering for their faith really result in the transformation of another person's life? Sure, it worked for Jesus, but can it work for us? That is another great question. You guys have great questions, by the way. This question is answered in the final verse of this passage. Paul points out that the followers of Jesus in Philippi are engaged in the same conflict that they saw he had and now hear that he still has. Paul is giving them both a past and a present example from his own life that it works. The past example was when he was in Philippi for the first time. Paul and a guy named Silas went to Philippi and they end up getting arrested. Publicly stripped, beaten with rods, and then thrown in jail. 
the jailer was given specific instructions to keep them safely. But it says that he takes them and not only puts them in prison, but he also puts their feet into stocks. See, Roman stocks are quite different than the medieval understanding we have of stocks or our traditional understanding of stocks. For, for Roman stocks, they would take your feet, twist them into a very painful position, and then lock them there. Was the jailer instructed to do that? Doesn't say so. Why did he do it? I don't know. But it wasn't a very nice thing to do. Anyways, around midnight, when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, suddenly there was an earthquake. And miraculously, the doors to the jail cells opened. And their stocks unfastened. Eventually, the jailer wakes up. How did he sleep through an earthquake? I don't know. But he does. He wakes up, notices the doors are wide open, and he takes his sword. And he's about to kill himself. He knew that terrible things would have happened to him for allowing prisoners to escape on his watch. But as that jailer is about to impale himself on his own sword, Paul cries out, Stop! 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 We're all still here! What happened? Paul, were your legs too sore from the stocks to get away? No. Paul willingly stays in prison, even though he could have escaped. Even though he knew it might mean further torture if he stays. Why? To save the very life of the person who contributed to his suffering. The very person who was holding him captive. See, this jailer, he wasn't blown away by Paul's preaching skills. He was blown away when Paul chose to stay rather than escape. He was blown away by this act that defies human logic. And it says that the jailer went and fell at Paul's feet. And he says something that is truly amazing. He doesn't say, why'd you stay? He says this. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that very night, not only the jailer's life was transformed, but also his whole family and his entire household, it says, believed in God. When Paul says in his letter that it's worked in the past, I'd be surprised if the jailer and his family and his entire household didn't stand up and shout, It's true! I, your friend the jailer, am evidence that it works. This points out such a profound truth. Do you guys have friends? Think of one of your friends. When you have a close friend, it can be really hard to imagine that that friend could ever become your enemy. We're BFF, best friends forever. How could we ever become enemies? The reverse is also true. When you have an enemy, it can be really difficult. And I mean like really, really difficult to imagine that that person could ever become your friend. It's possible that there were people in that community that all they ever knew was the jailer as their friend, as their brother in Christ. It works, people. It works. The second example is expressed in the form of the present tense. It can be found earlier in this very letter. Paul is writing from prison and he says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Does that sound like a person who's depressed about being in prison? It's dripping with optimism. And why? Because Paul knows that what his opponents plan for evil, God is using 
for good. For Paul, having people reached with the gospel was worth living for. It was worth suffering for. And yes, it was even worth dying for. Why? Because Paul was not, first and foremost, a citizen of Rome. Yes, he had Roman citizenship, and yes, he used it to his advantage to help with the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. But no, Paul was not, first and foremost, a citizen of Rome. He was a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, he knew that you may separate us from our friends, you may separate us from our family, from our home, from our comforts, and yes, you may even separate us from our very lives, but you may never separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. When people encountered Paul, there was no doubt in their minds that he was a citizen of heaven. Okay, enough about Paul, but what about us? What about us? Well, in many ways, we are in the same position as the people reading this letter in the first century. We have been presented with the gospel, and we are left with a question. How am I going to respond after all that God has done for me? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. I don't care what your passport says. Our true home is in heaven with Almighty God. And one day, one day we will be there and it will be glorious. But between this day and that day, we have to make a decision. Will the manner of our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ or not? If we were to do an assessment of our community here at Richview, what would we find? Are we sticking to the gospel? Is there unity in what we believe and in how we behave? Are we spreading the gospel? Are we unified and actively putting forth effort for the spread of the gospel? And are we willing to fearlessly suffer for it? I think, though, that these three things can be summed up into one thing. Three things is hard to remember. One thing, that's a little easier. Sticking to the gospel, spreading the gospel, and a willingness to fearlessly suffer for the gospel. It can all be summed up by saying that our lives are a clear sign to the world of our salvation. We've had talks around here about the fact that we need to have a church sign so that other people know that we exist. And I couldn't agree more. But I don't think it's something that sits stationary out on the front lawn. Every aspect of our lives is meant to be a clear sign to this community that we exist and that we are citizens of heaven. We are called to be a portable sign for Richview and bigger than that for the kingdom of God. How badly do we want to see other people reached with the gospel? Are we willing to sacrifice for it? Are we willing to suffer for it? Perhaps we have a tough time convincing our enemies, our coworkers, and yes, even our own kids that the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy because the words of our mouth are not consistent with the sign of our lives. It's easy to say that we're citizens of heaven. It's easy to coin a phrase, make a t-shirt. But if all of our efforts from Monday to Saturday are focused around storing up treasures here on earth, it's no wonder we aren't convincing anyone that there's something better beyond our death. What does our life say? Not just our words, but our life about who we are and about what is important to us.
In a moment, we're going to watch a video about the true story behind a song that you might be familiar with. It's called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. After this video, we're going to have the opportunity to respond in a number of different ways. We'll have the chance to sing the same song, but perhaps for the first time, there will be a whole new meaning behind our words. You may also choose to spend this time in, in quiet reflection and, and prayer, seeking God's help and his guidance. That's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Go for it. Or maybe you're feeling convicted right now to make a change in your lifestyle. If so, I encourage you to use this time to jot down your convictions in the space at the end of your notes. All right, before we transition to the video, though, um, I want to take a quick moment to share a few words that come from a letter from a mutual friend. My prayer for all of you is that you would in turn walk the talk. That daily you would joyfully create time and space to learn Jesus. That daily the first thing you would do is commit your day to living out your faith. And that it would be the most attractive thing in the world to everyone you encounter. That you would always marvel at the price Jesus paid to set you free. And you would put all your comforts aside to introduce and journey with people who have not encountered Jesus. It's so worth it. Your servant, Pastor Joe. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we've looked at the components of a worthy life, you are fully aware of all the ways that I personally am falling short. And God, I know that it's possible that after hearing a message like this, that there are people here who are feeling discouraged. Discouraged as they think of their past. And discouraged as they look to the future. This is a hard calling. But perhaps that's a good thing. Because if it was easy, we would try to do it on our own. But it's hard. In fact, it's impossible without your help. God, please help us. I think of the example set for us by people like the Apostle Paul, and Pastor Joe, and Jan Fukumoto. I thank you for their example of a life well lived. May you grant us the strength each day to live a worthy life until the day that we meet you face to face. But now, even in this moment, we invite you to meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. a true story of a small village in India. And in this village, there was this family that came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This agitated the village so much and everybody became so upset that an angry mob gathered and shoved them into the public square. The village chief confronted them and he said to the man, if you and your family will not recant your faith, you all will surely die. The man didn't know what to say or what to do. And so the only thing that came to mind for him were the words of a song that he himself had composed when he had first surrendered his life to God. And so he began to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And with that, horrifically, 
his children were killed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He was given another chance, this time with his wife's life on the line. And yet he continued to sing, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. After her tragic death, he was given one final opportunity, this time to save himself. And yet he continued to sing. Even though that man and his family died on that day, something remarkable happened. A seed was planted in the heart of that village chief, a seed that began to grow over time, and eventually he called the community together in that very same neighborhood, in that very same square, and he renounced his former faith and declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And a celebration broke out in that moment and the gospel began to flourish and to grow in that community, not just in that village, but across the whole region because they had seen real faith and they knew the true character of God because of a family that believed and sacrificed even under the penalty of death. you to join with me to sing that. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back though none go with me though none go with me still
It may not be granted to us to face persecution for our faith, like some of our brothers and sisters around the world. That being said, whether we face persecution or not, we have the opportunity for every aspect of our lives, from our finances to our families, from our actions to our attitudes to our priorities. It all has the chance to work together to function as a sign that screams to this world that we are a citizen of heaven. And Lord willing, with the help of the Holy Spirit, may our lives cause other people to stop and to think about their final destination. May we go in the joy of the Lord and discover what it means to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go in peace. <laughs>